Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Will Miller, political scientist now employed as an associate vice president with Campus Labs. And with me today is Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm doing, I'm doing okay, Will. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. It's been obviously a pretty busy week, so it should be a, a fun show today for us. Yeah, absolutely. But before we get to that, you know, I, I realized for, for a while now in the show, actually from the very beginning, uh, for some reason I made this bizarre decision to thank all of our new supporters and do that kind of stuff, like right in the middle of the show. And I thought, why exactly did I do that? Honestly, I don't know. I must have had a reason at the time, but I was thinking it probably would make more sense and be better to everyone listening if we did that at the beginning so it doesn't break up the flow of what we're doing. So that's that's what I thought we'd start doing uh, today, if that's okay with you, Will. That sounds perfect to me. Yeah, and, and, and listeners, if you don't like that, if you prefer the other way, let us know. You know, uh, happy to do it either way. But uh, for, for today, here's what we'll do. We'll do it uh, right right at the beginning. And so ever since I announced that 100 Patreon, Patreon drive, well, you folks have just responded in a great way. Been so appreciative. And this last week, we've had uh, Andrew, Eric, Paul, Mark, Will, Francois, John, and Scott all become new patrons. We've had a number of people increase their pledge amounts, Dakota, Brian, Amanda. We've had two new uh, one-time generous supporters on PayPal, Vincent and John. And it's just the, the response has just been really overwhelming and gratifying. And uh, uh, we, have, we had a lot of great responses as well. Eric wrote in to say, to prove I am a lover and not a fighter, I've just become a Patreon supporter. I really like that. Um, and our, uh, our anonymous, we had one anonymous supporter, he said, had a suggestion actually for us. Well, he said, you know, I'm not sure if other listeners have requested this, but I'm definitely interested in hearing all about hosts' favorite, most influential books. I like when you guys go over what you're reading right now, but those tend to be less timeless. And it'd be interesting just to see what most influenced all of your views, whether that's on the website, in a podcast, or a patron page for supporters only. I think it'd be valuable to have, uh, and maybe a couple of sentences explaining why you like the work and how it was influential to you as well. And, and, and you know, well, I, I thought about that. That's a really great idea. Uh, I think that'd be kind of fun to put together and interesting uh, for for uh, listeners as well. So uh, uh, I don't know. Would you begin to do something like that? Oh, absolutely. So Funny, as soon as you as soon as you made the note, I'm sitting here in my head, starting to think through uh, what my list would look like. Exactly. So that's a that's a great idea, and I have that on the to do list. It will happen at some point in the uh, hopefully not too distant future. So thanks so much for that suggestion. We really do appreciate it. Um, let's see here. Vincent, another new supporter, said uh, during a visit from my parents, I shared some of my favorite podcasts. Yours among them. About five minutes into a politics guys episode, my far, far left mother began shouting at Jay. <laughs> Struck me as evidence of why this balanced content is needed. Uh, yeah, I, I've had that experience of shouting at Jay myself a little bit. Hopefully not too much. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, we actually had a new supporter name. Well, Will, uh, not you, Will, but uh, Will wrote in to say, I love the show and I listen to every episode. I've searched for, read, and listened to many other political commentaries. And you guys are by far my best and my favorite. You guys are one of the few political outlets that maintains informational, educational, and bipartisan discussion. I love listening to the show and want to thank you guys for helping me stay informed, become more educated in politics and government from all sides, and from keeping my faith alive in effective, peaceful politics. That was, I just thought it was really nice, kind of gets at what we're exactly trying to do. And so thanks so much, Will. Um, and, you know, I, I had that 100 Patreon supporter thing, and I said that once we get to 100 Patreon supporters, I promise to format, upload, and release my 12-part series on the basics of American government, and that includes an in-depth discussion of my book, Navigating the News, and I, I said I'd also throw in the accompanying PowerPoint slides. Basically, it's kind of like having the experience of taking my online American politics class without actually having to pay all the, you know, per hour credit fees for, for that. Um, and Scott, who's been one of our uh, longtime listeners and supporters, uh, Scott and I disagree on almost everything and we butted heads, but we were at 99 yesterday and Scott got us over the top to 100 
Uh, and he wrote in, I think all news should have multiple commentators that have a counterpoint. It keeps out the hyperbole, and if the speaker knows, they will immediately get called out and may tone down the rhetoric. I think your formatting is the wave of the future. I like that. We're the wave of the future. I, 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 I like that. Yeah, buy That's into good. that. So, uh, and certainly Scott has done his best to keep me honest on, uh, on that um, and many other things as well. So thank you very much, Scott. We really do appreciate it. And finally, Francois accompanied his pledge of support with actually a critique of the show that I thought was worth uh, bringing up. He said, many times over the past two years, I thought about deleting your podcast from my subscription list. Today, I chose to support it on Patreon. I've been a free rider long enough. In all honesty, Jay is the reason I didn't commit much earlier. As one of your listeners once pointed out, Jay never surprises because Jay never strays from his orthodoxy. And when it leads him into ethically challenged realms, Jay waddles clumsily and drifts reluctantly toward noble ends justifying execrable means. Is Jay far right? Of course not but he'll sure cut them slack by downplaying the far right's degrading behavior and focusing on second-order points of trivia, sometimes making pertinent remarks along the way, sometimes not. How many times have we heard, well, that's Trump being Trump, usually followed by an embarrassed chuckle and a disingenuous segue? Mike, aren't y'all undermining fair civil discourse when courteous disagreement upstages robust pushback? A question I'm sure many listeners have. Politically yours, Francois. And, and, you know, of course, a number of listeners have suggested that. And, and I certainly, when I, when I feel that Jay or anyone, it could be Will, it could be Jay, uh, is, is being disingenuous or missing something, I try to push back. And certainly we appreciate listeners who push back. It's great to get comments saying, you guys are awesome. I love it. But it's also really important for when, when you think any of us, and I've been called on this, you know, for, for various reasons too, that we're not making a clear enough point or we're kind of ignoring certain realities. We love to hear from you on that because we're always trying to be rational, civil, fact-based, all that sort of thing. So thank you for those comments. Really appreciate it. You know, and as I said, we're on that, we're at that 100 patron goal. And what that means, it means a couple of things. Again, it means that I will be releasing that 12-part uh, that series on Patreon to all supporters. It also means that, well, I did something questionable, maybe, I don't know, I guess you'd call it questionable, last, yesterday afternoon, on, on the Facebook group, we were at 98, I said, if we get to 100, I am going to, before, the, before we do the show, I will personally compose and sing a special tribute song to our Patreon supporters and do it uh, at the end of the bonus show. And uh, uh, that should be really interesting. I have a song in mind. I'm getting it all put together and so forth. So you will get to hear the song stylings of Michael Baranowski. Um, uh, I don't know if that's exactly an incentive or a disincentive, but, but there you <laughs> well, go. Well, I'm ready. I can tell you that. <laughs> so, uh, so, so uh, patrons, and if you want to hear that, well, you, know, you can just sign up at politicsguys.com slash support. And also, so what that also means, though, is now we're out of goals. We need a new goal. And I've got one, Will. Um, here's our next goal. Right now, we're at uh, a little over $500 a month in support, and that's awesome. When we get to 575, why 575? I don't know. I just picked it out of thin air. It's a roundish number. But when we get to that point, all of our supporters will get access to detailed show notes that we'll put together that will allow you to see exactly where every segment starts and stops. So you can find things, skip things. Let's say you say, you know, I hate this beginning thing. Geez, can you just get to the news? You'll be able to get there. Or if you want to go from one story to the next, any of that stuff, that's what we're going to provide to you. All right. So I think that pretty much wraps up all of the housekeeping type stuff. And again, if you want to, uh, you know, make a pledge of support, politicsguys.com slash support, or, or you could just go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash politicsguys page. And if you have any thoughts on this, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Okay, with that out of the way, I think we're ready to get started with the, with the news, Will. Sounds good. And I think before we get into some of the more controversial stories where you and I might have some different views. We need to, to start the show, obviously, on something that I think we're going to have some, some pretty strong agreement on, and that's the, the passing of President George H.W. Bush uh, that was announced last evening. Um, and obviously, for me, on, on the right, George H.W. Bush is um, absolutely a leader that 
that I'll miss. I mean, when we look at what's happening in the country today and we think back on Bush delivering the, the points of light speech or talking about fulfillment from serving your country, um, absolutely a, you know, a career bureaucrat who ultimately finds the, the highest political office in, in the land and does his best over his four years to, to make that work, but also never really seemed like a guy who wanted to get embroiled in the, the truly political side of things and seemed to take every decision he made to, to heart with a lot of thought and a lot of consideration going into it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, w- when I think of George H.W. Bush, I, I think of uh, uh, that he was sort of a, a patrician in a way, and uh, that has kind of a negative connotation for a lot of folks, but I mean it in the, the highest sense uh, of the word. And, and, and not only that, but that he had a certain humility about him. There was a phrase, and I'm old enough to remember this, where he was made fun of uh, by, I think it was Dana Carvey on Saturday Night Live for his uh, oftentimes saying something wouldn't be prudent. And that just seems, that word prudent, it seems like such an old-fashioned sort of word, not of our times. But to me, that kind of exemplifies George H.W. Bush. He was a, uh, in a way, he was sort of a a gentleman, uh, not really made I would argue for the modern political era, I think it would have fit in better with like 19th century uh, presidents in many, in many ways, you know, and, and uh, after his death was announced, you know, there was this, uh, this text of the letter that he sent to Bill Clinton when Clinton uh, uh, became president. And uh, I think it's worth, uh, I think it's worth reading. It's short. So I'm going to do that. if That's okay. Um, Yeah, absolutely. He wrote, dear Bill, when I walked into this office just now, I felt the same sense of wonder and respect that I felt four years ago. I know you will feel that too. I wish you great happiness here. I never felt the loneliness some presidents have described. There will be very tough times made even more difficult by criticism you may not think is fair. I'm not a very good one to give advice, but just don't let the critics discourage you or push you off course. You will be our president when you read this note. I wish you well. I wish your family well. Your success now is our country's success. I am rooting hard for you. Good luck, George. And just what a what a nice sort of classy type of thing to to do and say. And again, I I, I have a great deal of respect for George H. W. Bush, and uh, I sort of miss that type of person in American politics that we just don't really see much of anymore. Completely agree. And again, I mean, you mentioned the the Dana Carvey impressions, and it's funny because two of the things I always think about when I think about Bush, number one is his uh, pronouncement that as president of the United States, he no longer has to eat broccoli. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then uh, also the the mishap with the grocery store scanner, mm-hmm. um, where he's sitting there and just looks very out of touch, but very genuine at the same time. And again, he gets a lot of negative attention for that without the the full story, which is, you know, atypical of what we see in the news a lot today. And, you know, nobody talking about the fact that that was a brand new device and nobody had ever used it, but Bush gets shown as this out of touch person. But it's just, again, as you point out, it's just so genuine. And I agree completely, Mike. I mean, I feel like, you know, again, the 19th century for sure, but I mean, even 50 or 60 years prior, I think the, the Bush type of approach to the presidency uh, just fits better. I feel like the times were moving and, and Bush was kind of a, a last hold on there. Um, and it showed, but yeah. again, I mean, what he was able to, to accomplish and do um, definitely gets, I think at the spirit of the civil mindedness that a lot of people are calling for today. Absolutely. And I, I feel I would be remiss before we moved on. If I didn't say, you know, we talk a lot about uh, president Trump's inflammatory comments and tweets, and he's in a way, I think sort of the anti George H W Bush, but, but I, you know, I think it's important to give credit where credit is due and the official white house statement, as well as president Trump's own personal tweet on this were, were uh, very uh, nice and classy and they were not at all the sort of narcissistic, aren't I great sort of things. And I give president, Trump credit for uh, responding, I think, in a very presidential way to the death of of one of his predecessors. Good for you, President Trump. Absolutely. Well, speaking of Trump and switching gears from civil mindedness, uh, yeah, probably our first story to talk about today would be our recent developments with Michael Cohen, uh, Trump's uh, personal attorney, who earlier this week pled guilty in federal court to a charge from 
uh, the Mueller investigation. Uh, and again, basically, this came down to him previously stating that talks about a Trump Tower project in Moscow had ended uh, in January of 2016, prior to the Iowa caucuses, uh, and that has since changed. Uh, and again, in the in the plea guilt or in the plea uh, this week, he made it very clear um, that he was doing this out of consistency with Trump's messaging, consistency with loyalty to President Trump. And again, not surprising, given that this is a guy who said at one point that he would take a bullet for the president. Um, but now, obviously, we're having lots of conversations about what does this mean? What does this mean about where the Mueller investigation stands? What does this mean about Trump's connections? What ends up being the next steps and how Trump's responded? Uh, so, Mike, what do, you, what do you think about Cohen and his his change on this plea? Well, I mean, in in a way, it doesn't it doesn't surprise me. The president has surrounded himself with a lot of what I would call low character people, and uh, once that when push comes to shove, I think you know it's it's every every person for himself. And uh, but I guess the bigger question I have is what does this mean exactly for the investigation? And and, and you know, I, it seems to me that that that. The crux of the charges is essentially that, well, that Cohen lied to Congress about this Trump deal with, uh, you know, with a potential hotel in or property in Moscow. And that that's problem for Cohen. And but, you know, the president pointed out that, well, even if even if we were doing this and so, so what, that it's not actually illegal. I misled the public, but there's, you know, that I didn't do anything illegal. and and. I think he's right about that, certainly. And again, it kind of gets back to my sort of sense about this entire investigation. I think that President Trump is an incredibly shady guy. Uh, I think that he's done a lot of a, a tremendous number of unethical things. But I think that probably when pushed when, when we, in the final analysis, we're not going to find the sort of direct illegality, the direct sort of things that would be enough to get us to impeachment and removal. Um, so that, that, that's kind of my big scale uh, view of this. But also, I should say, you know, almost everyone with the, with the Mueller investigation is focusing on President Trump. And that, that's understandable. I mean, but to me, it's taken on this sort of sense where the narrative is that, you know, Mueller is Ahab and he's kind of relentlessly obsessing, you know, over this great white whale that is Donald Trump. And, that's certainly the most dramatic and sensationalist way of framing it, but I don't know that I entirely buy that. And so what I did is I went back to the charge that Mueller was given by Rod Rosenstein in, in May of 2017. And it, if you read that charge, it says that he's authorized to investigate any links and or coordination between the Russian government and individuals associated with the campaign of President Donald Trump. And, you know, that's not just Donald Trump. This wasn't a this isn't a get Donald Trump thing. This is to investigate this collusion coordination. And maybe I'm wrong, but I think in the end, there's not going to be that the Mueller investigation is not going to find any direct collusion between the president and Russia because there are all these intermediaries. Now, what did the president know and when did he know it? And kind of the, the terms of the famous uh, phrase, I I don't think we're ever going to know definitively speaking. It's going to be this kind of he said, he said sort of thing. And there's not going to be enough to uh, justifiably remove the president. That's my sense. Yeah. And I, I completely agree with you, Mike. Um, there's part of me that as I hear about the Mueller investigation as the weeks go on, I've, I've just hit a point where I just don't care. Um, and it's not that I don't care about the illegality. It's not that I don't find some of these actions concerning. But I'm at a point where even, you know, for people that don't like Trump and don't want to see Trump in power, focusing in on this is not the way to do it. Um, because I think you're right. I think we're at a point where this has become a divisive issue. The people who support Trump and don't care for the Mueller investigation are not going to care what the report says. Um, it will be twisted and turned into what they need it to be for their side and to feel vindicated by, by what comes out of it. And as a result, I feel like a lot of things that people could possibly um, use against Trump in a more meaningful way, if we think about it from a campaign perspective, thinking about 2020, goes by the wayside, um, which, again, is somebody on the right. I mean, it, it doesn't bother me that the focal point is being kind of put on something that is not, um, like you said, I think actionable. I mean, even if something comes out of this report, do they have the votes? Probably not, especially not in the Senate at this point, unless there's some smoking gun. But I don't feel like this is 
a Watergate where it's all going to eventually crumble back to Trump. Yeah. Um, whether he's involved or not that directly, I just don't see it as, you know, I think Trump has done a better job of isolating himself with folks like Cohen than Nixon did. Um, and again, I mean, I think ultimately we see that in Trump's responses. I mean, there's a lot of conversation going on right now that basically Cohen, he took the plea deal. It has nothing to do with the Trump organization and that ultimately he's trying to get a reduced sentence. Um, and I can't fault Cohen for that whatsoever. Um, but the idea that this is the beginning of the downfall of Trump's presidency, I just can't buy that at this point, because like you, by the time anything comes out and whatever does come out, I feel like everybody has already decided where they stand on yeah. it, regardless of what that that final report reads like. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, I know that many of my friends on the left want President Trump out. Hey, I want him out, too. Um and one of the things that's most concerning to me about President Trump, it's not his policy. Now, a lot of his policies I absolutely hate. Don't get me wrong. But what really concerns me most fundamentally about Donald Trump is what he is doing to how he is encouraging lack of respect and lack of trust in our institutions. And that, to me, is the long term damage of Donald Trump. And but then again, elections are one of these key institutions. And so for me, it's difficult for me to get on board with uh, a majority of members of the House and two thirds of senators uh, impeaching and removing a president who won nearly 63 million votes, 304 electoral votes, unless there is just absolutely compelling evidence. And I would say the same, I'd like to believe I would say the same thing, whether it's a Democratic or a Republican president. That's not something you should do lightly. And, and hey, if, if the Mueller investigation comes out with some sort of a smoking gun for evidence, I absolutely will say he should be impeached and removed. But absent that, elections are, you know, that overturning the will of the people, as misguided as I may think it is, that's a big, big deal. There's not much more that's a bigger deal than that. And so as much as I find Donald Trump to be a repugnant human being, I'm not I have too much respect for our institutions to kind of use them in that that sort of way without, uh, you know, without really, really compelling evidence. And I think the key there, too, Mike, is it's not just that Trump had that much support, but this hasn't been a smoke and mirror show. Donald Trump, the Donald Trump who got elected is the same Donald Trump now. Yeah. This isn't behavior that changed after the campaign. This is what people voted for. Mm hmm. Um, and I think that goes into it as well, where, you know, it's it, it it's absolutely true. I mean, and I'm with you. My bigger concerns with Trump are, are definitely on the what are the long term impacts. But I think part of what's hard for for a lot of voters, a lot of political scientists, a lot of citizens to think through is we've never really had a president be this direct and blunt. And we don't know how to frame and think about that um, because I'm with you in terms of I'm more concerned about the long-term value impact than the long-term policy impact. Yeah, absolutely. Um, very much in the democratic bargain. Um, but again, when I look at things like Adam Schiff coming into the House Intelligence Committee and just over and over and over saying they're going to go after Trump in all these ways, Again, if we think about it from an election standpoint and a wanting to have trust in institution standpoint, we can't have institutions making things look like personal witch hunts when there are policy ways to sway the election in two years. Um, focusing on those values, focusing on the, the policies that the left doesn't care for with Trump, hitting on those is a much different argument than saying we're going to dig into his tax records, we're going to call everybody in the world before the House uh, and try to find a smoking gun that may or may not exist. That doesn't help that process either. Well, I, I, I guess that's a point where you and I might differ a little bit. I want to see the Democrats aggressively go after, look into the president, because I feel that the Republican House has been incredibly negligent in its duty to do that. And, and so I want to see the Democrats dig hard and dig deep. And if there is compelling evidence, I want to see that come to the fore so the people can make an informed decision. And, and I think there's there's a lot of stuff out there that should come to light. I want to see his taxes uh, uh, put out there and I want to see a lot of stuff come out there. And so I'm perfectly OK with that. All, where, where I draw the line is, uh, yeah, bring forth the evidence. Certainly, absolutely dig, dig deep and dig hard. But before you actually impeach and remove, make sure that these things are, you know, are are come to the level of being severe enough to overturn the will of the people. 
No, and, I, and that does make sense. And again, I'm not opposed to the transparency element here at all. I just think there is a, a another side to it in terms of the impact that could have that the left isn't always thinking of. Sure. Um, in the sense of this will rally some on the right around Trump, um, who will see him as being attacked at this point. And there's just, again, it's the question of, do you go for the transparency side and do you do that very thorough investigation? Or do you back off of some of that language in hopes of not having the right rally around him in the same way and being able to do the more policy play for 2020. And again, there's going to be a mix there in some way, shape or form. So again, I'm not opposed to the investigation. It's just, again, recognizing the the second half of this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, perfect. So now that we're talking about Congress uh, a little bit here, I think another thing obviously from this week was the, the Mississippi Senate runoff. Um, which was held on Tuesday. Uh, and obviously what we saw there was uh, Cindy Hyde-Smith, uh, I would say, uh, escape in some ways uh, over Mike Espy in the runoff, um, again, which did bring the, the GOP back to a 53-47 majority. And obviously this was a very, very interesting race. Um, there were definitely some uh, pretty clear racial undertones um, occurring. Uh, and a lot of analysis has actually sort of looked at, you know, has this been the the long-term history of Mississippi that's produced this result? Um, or was it a lack of, of effort and mobilization by the left? Um, but either way, it's been a much talked about election. So what are your thoughts on the Senate runoff, Mike? I, you know, I, I honestly, it's not that big of a deal to me. I mean, you look at the final result. I mean, it's not like this was actually close. And it was, uh, I think, uh, I think it was an eight point margin. Now that, I mean, it was, yeah, 50, 54 to 46%, I believe. No, that's, that's closer than typically these races are in uh, Mississippi. I mean, Trump carried the state by 18 points in 2016. Democrats haven't won in the Senate, uh, Senate race there since 19. 19- 82. And uh, let's see, uh, Cochran won by like 19 points the last time he ran. Wicker, who ran in 2018 here, won by 19%. So, you know, I guess it's it's progress of a sort, but I don't actually see this. It's not like Mississippi is turning blue or even, you know, bluish in any real way. So, I, you know, I, you know, it's something to focus on, I guess the media wanted, but, and that remark, yeah, that remark was, I think, kind of a, 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 a ill-conceived at best, reprehensible, I would argue, uh, remark, but I don't know how much it moved things, maybe a little bit, but I, I think the prospects for Democrats in Mississippi are not all that great. No, and I agree. And I think that is one of the takeaways here is that obviously, I mean, there's no shade of purple whatsoever in Mississippi. I mean, ultimately you're looking at a race where Hyde Smith at different point, obviously, talked about public hangings, talked about voter suppression. Donald Trump's there talking about how does this guy on the left even fit into your state? Um, And even with him running as a a fairly moderate Democrat, um, you know, depending on the race, uh, a lot of what um, Espy was talking about could almost be considered a little bit leaning to the right uh, and still could only close that gap so far. Um, this is a race that I think the the media jumped into, hoping to make a big story out of this and thinking it was going to be a lot closer than than it ultimately was. But for Mississippi in general, I, mean, I think it's an interesting time. When I mean, you look at the state that, you know, in a six year span, lost close to 40,000 people, which um, makes it by far the the fastest population decline that we're seeing in the country today. And um, how this represents that and what it means for their futures also, I think, you know, obviously something that could come away from this. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had a couple a couple of thoughts uh, on this. A couple of other thoughts on this is number one, it, it might surprise a lot of listeners that Mississippi is not as strongly Republican as you might think. I mean, it's certainly deep red, but for instance, according to Gallup's polling, it's not even in the top ten of strongest Republican states. And uh, if you look at the Cook Political Report, which they do a partisan voting index, Mississippi is only the 18th most Republican state. And it's so, I mean, it, it is it is fairly red, but it's not by any means the reddest of red states. Uh, and uh, a second thought I had is, you know, this means now that we know for sure that the Republicans will have a 53, well, 53 seats going into 2019, so they're plus two. And this is the reason why this matters. I've said before, this is the big deal for judicial confirmations, particularly, you know, we just saw recently 
why that's going to matter a lot with the, when we had two Republican defections that sunk the far nomination. You know, Tim Scott uh, from South Carolina, who's the only uh, black Republican senator and the retiring Jeff Flake, who said that they couldn't support far because of it, some questionable issues about race. And so that now in 2019, far probably would get confirmed. That's going to make it a lot easier for the administration and, and Senator and Mitch McConnell to push through further right, more extreme, controversial uh, judges. Absolutely. And I think that is the bigger the bigger piece to this is it is another Republican back in the Senate. Um, and that's going to involve um, obviously now significantly more work to look for um, ways to, to stop the far right from getting who they want in the courts. But again, it comes back to the elections for me. Um, that's that's what happens when we have these elections. And in two years, they can swing that back. But that's going to need to be a concentrated effort. And I think parties need to do a better job of reminding voters of the impacts of things like you're not just voting for a senator to represent you. They're going to vote on things like judicial nominees who could be on the bench for 70 years. Um, you just don't know. So just remembering that there's more impact than just who's going to best represent my local interests at this point. Absolutely. So another big piece of news this week, obviously, was General Motors uh, Monday announcing that it was going to idle five factories uh, in North America, uh, in Lordstown, Ohio, Michigan, Maryland, uh, and then one in Ontario, and cut about fourteen to 15,000 jobs in an effort to, to trim costs. And it seems like a lot of this is obviously based on the fact that um, consumers are showing GM pretty clearly a preference for SUVs, for crossovers, not for the more compact sedan-style vehicles that, that have been sort of the bread and butter of GM for a while. Um, and obviously, this this announcement has uh, caused an uproar for a lot of people, a lot of workers, for President Trump, for American taxpayers who remember that it was only a decade ago that we saved General Motors in general. Um, and for me, I mean, you know, it is a it's a fairly personal issue too. I I grew up about ten minutes from Lordstown, um, and know that that is sort of the the heart and soul of the Mahoning Valley and the union worker. Um, but again, I'm also not particularly surprised. Uh, there's always been the question of, you know, the unions and, you know, how do we justify paying somebody uh, hourly what we pay when it can be made elsewhere for, for lower wages? And now we're seeing some of that discussion come to fruition. Uh, so, Mike, what are your, what's your take on GM and their, their decision on Monday? Well, first, uh, I want to mention a, a Donald Trump quote from October 2016. If I'm elected, you won't lose one plant. You'll have plants coming into this country. You're going to have jobs again. You won't lose one plant. I promise you that. Whoops. Once again, Donald Trump making uh, uh, exaggerated promises that he could not possibly keep. Um, what occurs to me from this is that Donald Trump either doesn't understand how the economy works or he does, and he doesn't mind lying to people about how the economy works. I mean, this idea that, well, now he's you know threatening more tariffs in order to further support the industry. I mean, as you, you know, part of the problem is that these are, these are vehicles that there's just not enough demand for. And the idea that you can prop up your domestic economy by through tariff barriers, that's just such a wrongheaded view of things, you know. And in fact, GM said, suggested that the tariffs that he'd already put into place have cost them around a billion dollars. And so, I mean, I, I just, it just, doesn't really boggle my mind. He's telling people what they want to hear, but I got to believe that he's got to know he has people telling him that this is absolutely going to give him the reverse of what he says he wants. Yeah. And again, I mean, I think this has to be raising questions for Trump and I'm sure those conversations with uh, GM have been um, angry to say the least. And it's funny. I mean, you mentioned the Trump quote about losing plants. Let's go even more detailed. In 2017, he was in Youngstown, Ohio, right next to Lordstown and told people, don't move, don't sell your house. More jobs are coming. Um, and instead, they lose two shifts and now they're going to have the plant um, at least idled temporarily. Um, you know, obviously this isn't GM saying they're closing these plants with certainty, but they're also not getting any new product to create, which means we're in a a very strange status. And I think it's also interesting with these to look at the the local political responses um, because it's not just the GM workers. I mean, if you think about the Lordstown example, 
It's not just Lordstown. It's the truck drivers that brings parts to Lordstown. It's the local community. It's local restaurants. It's shift work. It's, I mean, to some extent, there's a an Ohio uh, turnpike toll booth right next to Lordstown. It will not be nearly as busy. There will probably be jobs lost there. Um, but I look at the the response from Trump, and I also look at the response from folks like Tim Ryan. Um, and Tim Ryan, Lordstown is in his district. Um, and to be honest, I mean, Tim Ryan has, has tried to make guarantees or get guarantees from GM related to Lordstown um, for a while, but I don't think it's been a, a focal point for him either on the left, which has kind of left workers wondering, you know, who's really supporting us before these types of announcements uh, come down on us. Right. You know, and, and some people have suggested that the larger picture is that, well, you look at the uh, annualized rate of auto sales, it's down uh, uh, by one million since around this time last year. And and the bigger picture here is we're in month 113 of an economic expansion. That's the second longest one since 1854, which is when records began being kept for that. Um, you know, I, I have to point out being from the left that the longest is 120 months from 91 to 2001, what we on the left sometimes like to call the Clinton boom, uh, you know, but, <laughs> but the point is, is these things end. You know, we have it's unusual, highly unusual to have an economic expansion that's this long. And this, there's a very strong likelihood that this expansion is going to come to an end under Donald Trump's presidency. And that, that gets to a point that I've tried to hit time and time again is is, uh, you know, the government is hugely important. Sure. But it doesn't have nearly the impact on the on overall economic growth that a lot of people want to attribute to it. Presidents aren't nearly as responsible, whether the economy is good or bad, as they would you know, like you to to believe. Certainly, there are larger forces that are at work here. And that's maybe a scary thing. We'd like to believe that we can turn a switch and do this or that and have that sort of control. But that's simply not. Uh, not as much the case as we'd like it like it to be. No, I mean this is steering the Titanic. I mean this is not going to be a, a quick turn or a quick place. It's just for me it, again when you mentioned GM and you mentioned the shifting um, priorities of consumers. I mean I can't I can't fault GM for sh- saying things like the Chevy Cruze, the Chevy Volt, the Impala just aren't selling, so we don't need to make them. We don't need to flood the market with cars that people aren't going to buy. There's no good from that either. Um, but I think it's also time for, and again, I'll use Lordstown as the example, for the unions to look at themselves and figure out if GM is expanding production in China and Mexico, why is that and what can we do to be competitive? Um, and if that means that our line workers can't make $60 an hour and get double time when they're working overtime, that's something we have to face because the idea of getting $20 an hour to work the line is probably a lot more palatable today to Lordstown workers than the idea of not having a job. Um, and it's, you know, I think we need to face that fact because from a GM perspective, again, if costs are going up, if there's also the interest rates increasing, if we have all of these things that are going to make it difficult to buy cars and we need to change the model, the cost savings has to come somewhere while they rebrand and regenerate, um, which it seems like their, their long-term plan is. Um, but obviously for the time being, that's going to cause a lot of problems for American workers, especially. Um, but also, as we've seen for politicians that have banked a lot on those jobs and that backing. Uh, the interesting part for me on Trump's going to be, obviously, he had done better thinking about Lordstown in Mahoning and Trumbull County than any Republican had in a long time. Um, and we saw that carry over to the Ohio statewide elections um, this year as well with Mike DeWine and the governorship. But there is something to be said for the fact that a lot of these workers, respect is not the right word, a lot of these workers like the outward anger that Donald Trump shows. Um, And I think there's going to be some support for Trump because of the anger he's going to show towards GM for making this decision, even if he is ultimately partially or more than partially responsible for GM making this this choice at the same time. And that's going to be interesting to see how it works out and how Democrats and Republicans both reach out to these workers and the messaging they use to try to help them get back on their feet. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I guess one one issue that I that I take is that, you know, the the response is often, well, the problem is the unions and these folks want too much money and benefits and they're unrealistic. And I'm not saying there's not something to be said for that. But I think all too often when you take a look at a lot of these companies is corporate profits are incredibly healthy. They're doing great. 
and none of that is trickling down. And so it's a, well, we can't afford this. And, and I oftentimes find that to be a questionable, uh, a questionable argument. You lay off a bunch of workers, all of a sudden your, your stock price goes off. And it's because I think fundamentally that these, you know, the, the corporate executives, they're not accountable to the workers. They're accountable to the shareholders. And that's a, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm not exactly anti-capitalism, but modern capitalism, I have some real problems with. And the destruction of unions, I think, has been a tragedy in this country for a lot of reasons. And I think blaming the unions is, you know, it's certainly something that we hear a lot from the right. But I think I think it's a little more complex than that. And I agree. I don't think it's just the unions. But my concern is there are some on the left where the unions are the third rail. We can't touch the unions. The unions don't have to do anything. The unions are in this equation in some way, shape, or form. Um, and I think it's important that we at least consider them as one of the variables as we kind of figure out ways that we can prevent factories like this from closing in the future. Um, because they definitely play a role. I mean, these workers, in a lot of ways, as you pointed out, Mike, um, need some protections to make sure that it's not all going to the top. Um, but again, it's it's the question of where do they fit into the bigger picture. And also, I think from some on the unions, it's been a lack of willingness to even entertain the thought um, that there is some element of, um, and again, I don't want to use blame, but there is some element that they have contributed to these decisions that just needs to be considered and looked at. Yeah, you know, but but I, I guess I would I would respond by by saying that if you if you take a look at agreements that unions have made over time, that they become less and less generous. So I think that that's actually been happening in a lot of industries. Now I think the bigger picture here is that man, given this globalized economy, it's inevitable that manufacturing moves to lower cost places and you know and and that means that that means that uh, the sort of manufacturing jobs with with great pay and great benefits are inevitably going to take a hit and what the answer to that is it's not simple but i would argue that we don't put nearly enough resources into into retraining into supporting people who are displaced by this and so we talk a good game and we'll get mad at gm or something like that but in it they can't ultimately be blamed they're playing the same game that companies around the world are that's how capitalism works and if we want to really help the people who are displaced by that we have to put a lot more into giving people the tools to to find good rewarding well-paying jobs in this new economy and i don't think we're coming close to doing that i completely agree with that in terms of for the workers that are impacted by this and especially for the workers in the gm scenario that you know hasn't got a lot of attention but i mean there were buyout offers made there were relocation offers made to folks in lordstown um, over the last six seven eight months i have friends that took the relocation offers um, but definitely in terms of the retraining and making sure that we realize that if this type of manufacturing work is not going to be available in places like Youngstown, Ohio or in Detroit and new types of technology are going to come in, which, again, that's what Tim Ryan's talking about. He's talking about Youngstown being this good tech hub. And there is there's a great innovation lab. There's a great business incubator. There's there's industries moving to areas like that. But we have to do something to have the GM workers capable of going to work there. Um, and that's definitely a responsibility that falls, I think, on GM. It falls on taxpayers. It falls on all of us to make sure they stay employed. Because from my end, too, I mean, when we look at this, we're talking, you know, 14, 15,000 workers potentially across the board. Those are 14 or 15,000 people that are not paying taxes at this point. So we need to get them back into work, meaningful work, give them that opportunity to provide for their families, um, and then figure out a way to do that that's obviously efficient and effective. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I say the way to do that is to invest in these people and that's something that's sorely lacking absolutely um so again as we talk about you know struggles of of individuals the the last story from this week that really came across my radar uh is what happened sunday at the san diego border crossing so obviously we know we have thousands of migrants from central america a lot of them are sitting in tijuana and shelters waiting to get through the asylum process or attempt the asylum process uh, which could obviously take months or years in some cases and we've seen some some organized protests happening in these areas related to this, uh, trying to force the U.S. to move a little more quickly through the, the migration process. 
Uh, and obviously on Sunday, one of these started as a peaceful protest and then turned uh, not peaceful quickly. Uh, we had a group of several hundred migrants sort of rush the border. They overwhelmed the Mexican federal police officers. Uh, and obviously they were attempting to enter the United States and in this case doing it illegally, which led to Customs and Border Protection shutting down uh, south and northbound traffic in that area for between six and seven hours. And then alt ultimately produced the image that's kind of going to become the representation of of the plight of these migrants from Central America with pictures of US border patrol uh, using tear gas uh, and then seeing a, a woman and a child um, that are being impacted by this. And obviously it's led to a whole new discussion and sort of up to the game and up to the discussion and seriousness related to immigration in the United States. So Mike, what's your take on, on what we see happening in Tijuana right now? Well, uh, on the tear gas thing, which has been the focus of it, I, I, I'm probably gonna take some heat for this view, but I tend to not have as much of a problem with it as a lot of folks on the left do. You know, I feel that some uh, media on the left, like my, my favorite punching bag Vox, has sort of been very irresponsible in framing it as the tear gassing of children, as if these Border Patrol agents said, hey, look, there's a kid and a mother. Oh, shoot, shoot some tear gas over on them. Certainly, you know, it, it was it was a case where a, a lot of folks were storming the border. There were there were projectiles being thrown. Now, granted, they were, you know, the Border Patrol agents were were uh, had protection from that. But that was a serious situation. And that was a I feel that was a you could certainly question how much of that was needed to be done. But I don't think it was unreasonable on the face of it. And and again, a lot of people are going to say, oh, my God, how can you say that? But that's sort of my take on that. And that's the smaller issue, I think. I understand why the media focused on that. But to me, the bigger issue is this, is border officials say that they can process, you know, fewer than 100 asylum seekers a day there. And when you have like 8,000 or right around 8,000 people there waiting all at once, well, that's going to be a problem when they're in these temporary conditions. And, and uh, you know, when, and, and so that to me is the real problem. What we need to do is we need more resources to be able to more quickly and efficiently process these asylum claims. And that's where we should be focusing on. And I don't disagree with that. From the bureaucratic standpoint, it, I mean, the idea that you're going to have to wait months or years um, is difficult, especially in these makeshift shelters. That's not ideal for anybody. Um, but obviously, from a bureaucratic process here, there needs to be some check done. Um, and again, I, I'm with you, Mike. I'm glad. I'm glad you said what you said. The the tear gas part, to be honest, doesn't bother me. Again, the the Vox side, some of the liberal media kind of saying that it was targeted at women and children. If that was the case, that would be concerning. But I look back, and again, it's not just the Obama administration that also. Um, use tear gas on the border, but Border Patrol for, for years, for decades, has been sitting there saying that if there's lawlessness in those types of efforts, that they'll use non-lethal responses like tear gas to try to break some of these groups from attempting to to break through the border. But again, with you, I, I'm concerned about the asylum pace, but I'm also equally concerned about rushing through that process and allowing individuals in on asylum claims that don't have legitimate claims to asylum. And it puts us in that sticky situation between how can we be both as thorough as we need to be while also expediting this? Because again, my concern is if they don't have legitimate asylum claims and we do expedite and we deny asylum and turn people away, the response from media and from some citizens is going to be that we just blanket rejected everybody because that's what we wanted to do, regardless of the process. So I'm still trying to figure out how do we get the best of both of those worlds. Yeah, and, and that definitely is, I think, the crux of the problem. To me, the system that we had under the Obama administration was it, certainly imperfect, but it, I was okay with that, which essentially is you get people through as quickly as possible and you release that you allow them to go into the United States. And we know we have plenty of data saying that the vast majority of people do in fact come back for their hearings. Now, I think we're talking like somewhere in the low to, or mid 80%. And that means sure that there's like 15% or so of the people who don't come back. And I, that to me is a price I am willing to pay. I, I am I am okay with that. And plenty of people on the right aren't okay with that. And I get that. Now, secondly, it, it's reported that the Trump administration is trying to work with Mexico to have these folks wait in Mexico 
while their claims are being processed. Now, of course, to do that, that obviously requires Mexico's cooperation, and that imposes a pretty big cost on Mexico. I mean, this isn't a rich country we're talking about. They're, I looked it up, they're number 70 in GDP per capita at around $9,300 per person. U.S. is obviously a much richer country. We can much more easily afford to absorb those costs. And I believe that the, that, that the principle here is important enough to, uh, to, to make the cost of, of doing that to be absolutely worth it. I, I want people to come in. I'm willing to give these people who are coming in, I think for the most part, just fleeing awful violence and oppression, the benefit of the doubt. And if, if a few folks who maybe aren't so great get through so that a whole bunch of folks, we can provide a better life for them, I am perfectly okay with that trade-off. I guess my response to that is because I'm on the fence on the Obama policy. I'm not patently against the idea of letting people wait here. For me, the trade-off there comes from for the 15 to 20 percent that don't show up. Once they've been located, it should be zero tolerance and they should be deported immediately. Um, where if you're not following the policies and we're giving you that opportunity. And as for the Mexico side, I agree with you where this is difficult for Mexico to sustain, obviously, and the idea of asking them to to hold these folks while we take our, our jolly old time kind of working through a process is um, going to be difficult for them. But it also raises the question to me on some grounds of, so why is Mexico letting everybody in without knowing that they can actually sustain it too? Um, so, I mean, I, I, I get that part, but I also look at saying, well, Mexico welcomed the caravan into the country, not knowing if they would get to the United States. Um, and obviously this week with, with the U S Canada and Mexico working on trade, I am, I'm sure that some of these discussions came up or will come up with uh, the new ne- new Mexican president. But um, yeah, like you said, for the individuals, that's who I feel bad for. I mean, when they show the picture, even if I'm not completely opposed to the tear gas and situations where they need to break a crowd, there's still something when we talk about globalization, about seeing a young child wearing a frozen shirt being tear gassed by sure. the Absolutely. American Border Patrol um, that, that raises, again, value questions more than policy questions as well. Yeah. No question. The, the, the one final point I want to make on that is, of course, there is a you know pretty significant economic cost of closing the border. It was briefly closed in that area. Uh, estimates I've seen between 10 and 15 million dollars per day in Southern California. So this has some very real effects on businesses in, in that area because we, you know, I mean, I, I have never lived right on the border, but it, that's oftentimes businesses and people and commerce, you know, that flows back and forth on a pretty regular basis. And so this is not a no cost, simple kind of thing that doesn't have some very important ramifications. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that's the, that, that will be the interesting part. And I think to some degree, that is where we might see movement is if we get to a point where that border is having to continually be shut down, because again, closing that border for six hours is a big deal. Yeah. Um, especially, and again, any border, that would be a big deal, but especially from, from U.S. interests, that border in particular. Um, so I think that's definitely something that we'll, we'll see discussed as we move forward. All right. Well, that's it for this episode, everybody. Thanks for listening. We hope you like what you heard. Listener support, as Mike mentioned at the beginning, is obviously what keeps the show going, and we truly appreciate it. So obviously, you can subscribe to the show, which also helps us. So does sharing episodes, and it's easy to do in your podcast app. There's the share symbol. Just go ahead and share that. Word of mouth is our best advertising, so we'd appreciate you uh, sharing with your family and friends. As Mike shared, we obviously have some listeners who are doing that on the regular with us, and I hope that nobody's mothers are are yelling at me right now as I'm sitting here sitting here speaking. If you've got questions, comments, corrections, or just thoughts you want to share, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com, or you can head to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash politicsguys page, or on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, Bruce Johnson, and Will Miller. This show is produced by Michael Baranowski and Will Miller. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us then.